Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? Now, you're a Wallace and Gromit fan, right? Definitely. I love Wallace and Gromit. Well, I've got a fact you may not know about them, but did you know they actually helped save a cheese? No, how's that? Well, it was in the early 90s, and these cheesemakers behind Wensleydale Cheeses, they were struggling. And according to the Yorkshire Post, things were so bad at the creamery that the company was actually considering closing up shop. And then this little phenomenon called Wallace and Gromit came along. <laughs> so for you listeners who don't know in the animations, the crackpot inventor Wallace loves cheese, and especially Wensleydale. And the animators chose it because it sounds charming and British and, you know, kind of made for a good punchline. But it was just a coincidence, actually. They were unaware of the hardships the little cheese company was going through. But the short films actually caused sales to jump by 23%. And before long, this little forgotten cheese was getting imported in big numbers to the U.S., Canada, and, Mango, France. <laughs> and that's just one of the stories we're going to tell you today about cheese. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, tucking into the most lavish cheese tray imaginable, that is our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, for today's show, we're giving cheese its due by checking out the science and the history behind everyone's favorite golden curds. We're going to explore some fun origins, peek into what makes rotten milk so delicious, and along the way, we'll also take a look at the state of American cheese today. Yeah, but before we get started, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our researcher, Gabe, who was under the weather this week, but did an amazing job working through it to get us some facts and stories for today's episode. So, Gabe, you're a real hero and a traditional get well crate of stinky cheeses is headed your way. Oh, man, Gabe, you are such a hero. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, Mango, we've got a whole wide world of cheeses to dive into. So, So where do you want to start? Well, I, I know we were talking before the show about how cheese is this universally beloved food. Like, kids go crazy for mac and cheese. It's a 
I think it's Pizza Rat's favorite type of pizza, and uh, <laughs> sophisticated adults eat it for a course instead of dessert. Well, actually, speaking of mac and cheese, you know, one of the things I read this week was that Kraft mac and cheese is actually more popular in Canada than anywhere else in the world. Did you know this? Mm-mm, no idea. So Food Republic had this article about it, and they cite that of the 7 million boxes sold around the globe every week, Canadians consume 1.7 million of those. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, Canada eats twice as much mac and cheese as we do here in the States. And most people refer to it as craft dinners or just KD for short. I'm serious. Kevin Durant isn't the default KD in Canada. Craft dinners <laughs> are. That's how big it is. You know, it's even referred to as the national dish of Canada. And I had no idea about this before we were doing our research this week. That's pretty funny. So I, I always think of craft as such an American thing. And I actually want to talk about craft cheese in a bit. But before we do, did you realize that cheese is actually the most shoplifted item in the entire world? You know, I feel like I'd heard about that in Europe, but but actually worldwide. I know. So I I would have thought it was candy or maybe CDs back when CDs were a thing. But according to the Center for Retail Research, which is this British organization, cheese is the most frequently stolen item in the entire world. And this is nuts. But they claim that 4% of the world's cheese supply winds up being shoplifted. 4%? Actually, I read in 538 that the U.S. produces about a billion pounds of cheese every month. That seems like a lot of stolen cheese. So any idea why it's such a tempting target? Well, I I think it mostly comes down to practical reasons. Like, it's pretty easy to pocket some cheese if you need to. (laughs) I feel that might be easy, but I don't know that I want to, like, stick some brie in my pockets or anything (laughs) like that. But you're right. It probably wouldn't look suspicious, I guess. (laughs) Or just, like, pour some nacho cheese down a short pocket, you know. Mm. (laughs) But, uh, you know, cheeses are generally packaged in tiny servings. So it's not like the majority of shoplifters are trying to steal these giant wheels of cheese or anything. But... I think the real appeal is the cheese itself. So for anyone who's hungry or desperate, cheese is rich in vitamins and protein. And plus, it can keep for months at a time. And of course, it tastes delicious, right? But uh, that isn't actually the only type of cheese theft I read about. So I, I was reading about this cheese crime earlier this summer at a food competition in England. And there were these two enormous blocks of cheddar that won first and second place at the Yeovil Show, which I, I guess is a big festival in Somerset. But then after the judging, some cat burglars snuck into the tent and made off with the big cheese. And I mean that literally. (laughs) So, like, according to an article in the Daily Mail, each cheese was about the weight of a bag of cement and the size of a traditional bulky TV set. Oh, my God. That is some big cheese. (laughs) Yeah. And and apparently the crime was premeditated because, like, the authorities agreed, quote, the blocks are not the sort of thing you can put in a handbag or hide up your jumper. But... (laughs) But if the thieves can get these stolen goods to, like, the U.S. or France, they should actually be able to make a few thousand dollars for their efforts on the black market. Or, um, you know, like, just end up with a year's worth of the best grilled cheese sandwiches ever. That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled for suspiciously big cheddar blocks on eBay, I guess. Well, I definitely will. But let's talk a little bit more broadly about cheese and, and how it's actually made. I don't know if you saw this number, but did you realize there are over 1,400 different types of cheese out there? Mm-mm. So that allows for a variety in flavors and textures and, of course, aromas that's really unparalleled by any other food. Yeah, there's actually this overview of cheeses from the 1960s called uh, the Cheese Book. And uh, it refers to cheese as the wine of foods. And that's partially because the fermentation makes it possible to have this, like, tremendous amount of variance even though cheeses are generally made from the same ingredients. And hmm. I, I know you looked into some of the early history of cheese, 
I definitely want to hear about that. But before we get into that, can I read you this one quote Gabe found? Because it just made me really happy. Sure. So what is it? So it's by this American writer, Clifton Fadiman, who used to write for The New Yorker. And he wrote, a cheese may disappoint. It may be dull. It may be naive. It may be over-sophisticated, yet it remains cheese. Milk's leap towards immortality. Oh, man, I've got goosebumps <laughs> from that, man. I said, milk's leap toward immortality. That's a big quote. I like that. Yeah, I love it, too. But uh, let's talk about cheese's humble beginnings. Well, what did you find out in your research? All right, so there are a lot of happy accidents in the history of the world. So, of course, the discovery of penicillin falls into that category. So does the discovery of cornflakes and the invention of the slinky. And then, of course, there's cheese. <laughs> I like the idea that, like, penicillin, cornflakes, the slinky, and cheese can all sort of hang out and have this one thing in common. So I've read basically the same story in a few places, but this is how Wired told it. The whole thing began when a herdsman, carrying a ruminant stomach brimming with milk, found that by journeys in, he had a bag full of curds and whey. Now, some stories claim this guy was an Arabian merchant, but... Whatever the case, for some reason, he looked into this bag and he was using it to transport this milk and he wasn't put off by the smell. <laughs> and then he decided to stuff that cheese in his mouth. I mean, I don't know why he would do this, but it was either good enough or interesting enough that he decided to do it again. And, you know, that's the most common theory. But in terms of things we can point to, the first real evidence of cheese making that we have here is, is from like 7,500 years ago. And it was from an old pot in Poland. And the researchers at the University of Bristol found a vessel that looks like it was used to make cheeses. Now, apparently, the innards of the thing look very much like a modern cheese strainer. And after analyzing the nooks and the crevices of the thing, the, the scientists realized they were right. They found fatty acids still stuck in the container, which proved it had been used to separate the whey from the curds in order to make cheese. So I, I'm always amazed by this sort of like historical detective work. So I, I don't even understand, like, how do you know to look for fatty acids because something kind of looks like a cheese trainer, right? <laughs> it's amazing. So do you know anything about why our Polish forefathers, I mean, your Polish forefathers and my Polish forefathers bothered right. to make cheese? Like, it feels like such a laborious effort when you've already got meat and milk at the ready. Well, if you think about it, a lot of it comes down to convenience. So then transporting, you know, cheese is a lot easier and it stores pretty well and Eating it meant you could settle down and sustain yourself without having to kill livestock for food. And the truth is the process hasn't changed all that much in 7,500 years. I mean, the basic elements are still pretty much all the same. You let fresh milk ferment with bacteria. That can be wild or cultured. And when there's enough acidity in your spoiled milk, you add these enzymes to make it coagulate. So in that origin of cheese story I was telling, these enzymes would have come from the lining of the stomach bag that was being used to transport this milk. And it's called rennet, but it can be made in a lab now. And, and then you cut, stir, and heat the product to remove the fluid or the whey. And finally, you take the curds. You put them in the mold with salt and press them to get out all that extra liquid. And then you let it mature until it blooms into a delicious cheese that everybody wants to shoplift, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, here's what's interesting. You remember those 1,400 types of cheese I mentioned earlier? Sure. Well, according to food scientist Paul Kinstead at the University of Vermont, the reason there are so many distinct types of cheese is because there are so many pre-industrial communities that all needed a way to preserve milk. So they all figured out their own cheese recipes. You know, these different solutions for making cheese given their region's distinct climate or milk types or all sorts of other conditions there. That's really fascinating. And, you know, you always hear that term terroir associated with wine, like yeah. all the elements of a region's terrain and these 
unquantifiable conditions that give a wine its unique flavor. And you can see why that word gets applied to cheese as well. Speaking of terroir, I, I was reading this BBC article on this cheese called uh, Vaster Bodensost. I'm obviously reading that off my notes because there's no way I could remember that. But uh, this cheese is super famous in Sweden. It's like this hard yellow cheese with tiny holes. And according to the BBC article, it's served everywhere. It's served at like royal weddings, at uh, the uh, Nobel Prize dinner, the at that restaurant, uh, Noma. It's like the most famous restaurant or whatever. And, yeah. and there's even been poetry written about it. I mean, I feel like that's the <laughs> ultimate compliment for a cheese is when a poem gets written about it. And the Prince of Jordan claims it's what he loves about Sweden most. But the craziest thing about this cheese isn't that it's in such high demand, but that no one can replicate the cheese in other regions and not even the dairy that produces it itself. Hmm. So uh, apparently some years ago, they tried to expand their operation to a nearby city, but none of the cheese they made there came out the same. Like, they commissioned this elaborate research to figure out why. They did all these, like, big chemical analyses on the cheese, but their scientists just couldn't figure it out. And there are all these theories, right? Like, some people think there's this uh, distinct microflora in the building in, in Bourtras, where uh, the, the building where the cheese is aged. And that supposedly gives it a distinct layer of flavor or there are these old spruce shelves and people think like that the cheese is aged on that is contributing to the flavor. Or um, some people think uh, the cows in the region get more sunlight and that affects their milk. Like there are all hmm. these theories. In fact, like like one of the more far out ones is that like there was a, a meteorite that hit the lake in town and people think that affected the region's soil. So the soil is what's contributing. Anyway, there, there are a lot of ideas, but for whatever reason... No one's been able to replicate the cheese's distinct flavor anywhere else. That really is fascinating. All right, well, why don't we pick this up with the origin of a cheese that's very replicable, and that's American cheese. But let's do that right after a break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. 
Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. All right, Mango, before the break, I think you said something about how poetry about cheese might be the ultimate compliment you can give a cheese, but (laughs) I I really, I'm going to have to disagree with you on this. So I'm curious where you're going with this. Because I think the highest compliment might be when the Virgin Mary's face shows up on the side of your grilled cheese sandwich, you know, just to let you know you've got a (laughs) superior cheese on your hands. You know, I, I remember the Jesus Cheeto, like the one that looked like Jesus on the cross. And I know there was a Jesus image that someone found on a Marmite lid in Australia, but I don't really remember the grilled cheese Madonna you're talking about. Oh, man, the story was pretty incredible. And I, I remember it from the news as a kid, but it was in 1994. This Florida woman made herself a grilled cheese. She then cut it in half, took a bite and then stopped. Because she saw the Mother Mary staring back at her right there in her toast. I mean, this must have been an amazing experience. And then for some reason, she decided to box the thing that this half sandwich and, and she put some cotton balls around it and she kept it on her <laughs> nightstand as a good luck charm. And she claims the blessed grilled cheese helped her win $70,000 in a casino, among other things. And in that time, it never actually sprouted mold. And that just increased her faith in its powers, you know. Sure. But then in 2004, she decided to sell it on eBay. And the auction site initially took the listing down because you know, I thought it was a hoax. But then they allowed it to go back up. And the Miracle on Toast sold for $28,000 to GoldenPalace.com, which is this online casino. <laughs> so between her like 70000 in winning and this 28000 from this other casino, she basically like milked $100,000 out of casinos. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so... um. Was it really a 10-year-old sandwich? Like, how come it didn't have any mold on it? Well, Brendan Corner at Slate actually did this analysis on it and, and talked about all the factors that could have been contributing to this. So the Wonder Bread would have had plenty of preservatives. I know you might like Wonder Bread, but you might not be surprised to know there are a few preservatives in there. And uh-huh. the margarine that was slathered on it would also protect the bread with its trans fats. And, you know, the cooked cheese itself could have changed the pH, which would have slowed the mold's growth as well. But that said, Corner did think it was pretty special that there was no mold at all on this sandwich. I mean, that that is unbelievable. But there's a bigger shock to this mango. And that was that a copycat sandwich with Hello Kitty's face. And you think that'd be a big deal. It only (laughs) had a high bid on it of 80 cents. So sad. 
Well, I, I like that no one's paying top dollar for a Miracle Kitty sandwich. <laughs> Actually, also, just for the record, when she sold the grilled cheese, the Florida woman insisted that whoever the next buyer was not devour the Mother Mary sandwich. What? And the casino, not surprisingly, agreed to this. I mean, it's a 10-year-old sandwich. But speaking of special cheeses, I, I know you looked into the history of American cheese. So why don't you take a minute just to give us a quick rundown of it? So uh, America rallied around making cheddar pretty early. And cheddar was this incredibly hearty cheese. It weathered the temperatures and humidity really well, unlike some of the other European cheeses. But it still tasted great. And by the 1790s, the U.S. was exporting cheese to England as, quote, Yankee cheese. Uh, it was also called American cheese back then, too. And the upper classes in England looked down on this stuff, partially because it came from America, but also because they didn't think it stood up to the traditional English cheddars. And, and the quality really varied from cheese to cheese, but it sold to the lower classes in England because it's so cheap. And America sort of rallied around this cheddar cheese. So I, I don't know if you've gone to upstate New York, as my mother-in-law is from upstate New York, but um, there are all these stores there that sell store cheese in the windows. Hmm. And, no, I haven't. Yeah, and I, I, I never uh, heard that term before, but the first time I saw it, I was so confused. Like, what's store cheese? But that's just the term for local cheddar, and it's almost like a house wine. But upstate New York's love affair with cheese really took off in the 1850s, and 1851 in particular, that's when this uh, gentleman named Jesse Williams started a cheese revolution by starting the first big cheese factory in upstate New York. Like his son wasn't a very good cheesemaker, apparently, and he decided to help him out by buying milk from the surrounding areas. And together they made this more consistently quality cheese. And according to David Clark, who was our, uh, you might remember, he was our cheese historian yeah. at Mental Floss, the factories just took off in the region from there. And by the 1870s, the U.S. was sending over 300 million pounds of cheese back to England every year. So cheddar sort of became the default cheese. That's really interesting. And, and I like that we claim we had a cheese historian at Mental Floss. That's pretty <laughs> great. He was awesome, though. So I do want to touch on things like Monterey Jack and other American cheeses. But how do we get from cheddar to craft singles? Like, is there actually a thread there? Yeah, definitely. So... One of the things I was stunned by was how early James Kraft was in the business. And actually, Canada kind of comes to their love of Kraft, honestly, because he was a Canadian who moved to the States and saw this opportunity in wholesaling cheese. I guess he was trying to figure out how to reduce waste, because at first he was just trying to cram cheese into jars <laughs> and then into cans, apparently, which just seems so gross. But then in, uh, in 1916, he stumbled into this genius idea. And here I'm quoting Clark again, by shredding refuse cheese, repasteurizing it and mixing in some sodium phosphate, Kraft produced the strange wonder we now know as American processed cheese. And apparently it was this huge success from the start, right? Like Kraft was this true American salesman. He marketed his cheese, which was obviously made from scrap cheese, as this superior product because it was more consistent. And by the 1930s, over 40% of the cheese consumed in America was Kraft's, which is crazy, right? So yeah. naturally, this processed cheese had this much longer shelf life than anything that was natural. And when he got into supplying cheese for the troops, his business really took off. Of course, later cheese manufacturers lobbied to have Kraft's product called a cheese product instead of a natural cheese. Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, anything with less than, I think it's 51% cheese and it can't legally be called cheese, which which to me seems pretty fair <laughs> if it's less than that. But 
You know, whenever I hear the phrase cheese product, I always think of Cheese Whiz and how you told me that story about when the inventor of Cheese Whiz tried a jar of it decades later. He actually called up the hotline for the company because it tasted so terrible. <laughs> yeah, they changed the formula to not use any cheese. And he called up the hotline to tell him it tasted like axle grease. Like those were his <laughs> exact words. But back to the Kraft single. So that was uh, James's brother Norman's invention, Norman Kraft. Mm-hmm. And he knew that sliced cheese from the store was pretty inconsistent. Like it came in all sorts of sizes and thickness. So in 1935, he started playing with ways to make a more convenient cheese. And this was going to be a godsend to people, but it actually took him 15 years to do it. But the way he did it is kind of cool. Like he had these ribbons of cheese, like hot cheese that would get poured and then cut by a machine and packaged in a block of eight peelable slices. Huh. It was a huge improvement. And the press actually raved about it. They called him um, deluxe processed slices. And according to the New York Times, cheese slices used to curl and dry out. And this solved those problems. So sales of craft just skyrocketed after the innovation. All thanks to Norman. That just sounds like the name of the guy that should have invented craft cheese <laughs> or should have invented this processed cheese. But so, so when did they actually start coming individually wrapped? Yeah, so I, I looked into that too. And that wasn't until 1965 when this other inventor, uh, I think he's in Indiana, he wasn't working for Kraft, but he solved the problem of these sliced cheese blocks sticking together. And Kraft saw the genius of the idea and came up with their own tweak on the process. So Bonap did this article glorifying the Kraft single, and as they put it, quote, American cheese is the greatest cheese known to man, even if it really isn't cheese at all. Oh, ouch. So actually, we always had Kraft singles in my house growing up, and partially it was because we used them for grilled cheese. Like, uh, they, they were there for me and my sister to toast our own as a snack. But increasingly, we only kept them in the house around for my dog. For your dog? Yeah, she was like really greedy and she'd fly out the door and just stay a little out of range. And as a pup, we'd like chase her around until we caught her. Like our whole family would be out there trying to tackle her because she was so wily. But uh, <laughs> then I, I think my mom realized that she loved American cheese. So as my dog grew older, you'd call my dog's name and she'd just kind of ignore you. But then when you yell the word cheese and then you prove it with the sound of like the plastic just peeling off that craft single, then she'd suddenly come bounding back. I like that she needed the two pieces of proof there. That's pretty great. Well, well like all my neighbors knew it. Like they knew when we had a, <laughs> like waving this craft single to like what was going on. <laughs> That's pretty great. Well, craft obviously has a big part in American nostalgia. And you know, there's been this huge swing back from manufactured foods to the super artisanal stuff. And there was an article in Scientific American last year that said there are over 400 craft cheesemakers in the U.S. now, which is, I think it's like double what it was just 15, 16 years ago. Yeah, and I, I'm sure it's a similar trend for like breweries and artisanal pickle makers or whatever. Pickle makers. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> what struck me about the Scientific American article was that it made this interesting point about how the American terroir versus the European concept of it. And let me quote this article by the writer Layla Eplett. She says, while their European counterparts have an invention of tradition, Americans have what cultural anthropologist and MIT professor Heather Paxson calls a tradition of invention. You see, I flipped that thing there, Mango. Mm-hmm. It's a little different, but that emphasizes this innovation and prioritizes change over continuity. So in France, the flavor of terrain described how the region and the people and the cultural tradition were all involved. And you know, also like the technique, they, they all contribute to the taste of the cheese. 
But in the United States, terroir is given this kind of more of an entrepreneurial and maybe an individualist twist. And, and that helps to designate the taste of a particular farm and its products rather than, you know, sort of the, the taste of the cultural or the geographic region that you might see from the European cheeses. That's actually pretty interesting. Uh, and I, I guess it makes sense because the U.S. always has like this more individual spin on things and it makes sense for cheese as well. But I actually remember reading this article in an anthropology class in college about baseball and how unusual it is in sports for one person to face off against an entire team. And, you know, that, that's what every batter does one by one, right? But also how that's part of what makes it such an American game, like this mythic belief in the individual. And I don't know if it's a great argument, but I, I, I actually never thought about it that way. Huh. Well, we, we should probably do another episode on cheese at some point because there's so much we won't get to cover in this episode. And because, as I've said many times, I could live on cheese. I love <laughs> cheese so much. But I, I do want to cover some cheese superlatives because I love cheese so much. So how about we tackle that after a quick break? Sounds great. Okay, Mango, today we've got Christine Hawney on the line. Now, Christine's an old friend of ours from her previous life at the New York Times. She's a wonderful reporter, and she's got a terrific new show on Netflix called Rot, and it's all about food crimes. Welcome to the program, Christine. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us, you're doing this show for Anthony Bourdain's production company, and it looks really beautiful. So I have to ask, why did you choose to focus on food crimes? Uh, when I was at the Times, I had a conversation with some of the, the heads of Zero Point Zero Productions, and one thing I found was that I, I was on maternity leave, and I was watching Bourdain's show and just thought, as you said, it was a beautiful program, and I thought, like, why am I watching this? I haven't slept in months. There's something here really compelling. And so it actually just grew out of a conversation with ZPD about the fact that I had covered a lot of crime, I sent two people to prison with my reporting, and how that intersects with food. And they've done a lot of wonderful food shows like Mind of a Chef, Parts Unknown, and they've also done um, some crime shows like The Hunt with John Walsh. And I just said, why don't you marry the two? So they hired me to start looking into this area. And then when you start looking into food crimes and what has now become rotten, you see that food fraud is just so rich with stories. And sorry to say, but if you're a criminal this is the place to go. <laughs> Not to give anyone any, you know, job leads here, but um, it's, <laughs> because uh, it's incredibly under-regulated and you can make a lot of money, you can commit a lot of crime, and you won't serve as much time. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I love that you're giving criminals advice on our show and we index high <laughs> with criminals, so that's great. But uh, I just watched the show on garlic and it really is beautifully shot and it's fascinating. And, and it was called Garlic Breath, which I was just delighted by. But uh, one of the things I thought was just so crazy was that you've got those clips of how garlic wasn't super popular before, I think it's the 60s or 70s. And then there are all these commercials trying to introduce it to the public. Like, that footage was hilarious, and, and obviously the documentary is super serious, but uh, how did you learn that story? We talked about how did you grow up with as much garlic, and then it, it really got into these free-ranging conversations with my colleagues at CPZ about when you started eating more garlic, were you influenced by um, Emeril? I mean, I remember watching Emeril Lagasse when I was a federal courts reporter in Alabama covering death row cases, and he was just like comfort. So I always think of him with him saying, like, garlic, garlic, garlic. And 
so um, that's where we kind of picked up on that history of how it's really taken off and it's integrated into everything that we eat now. But then it's married to this crazy crime that a lot of garlic in the U.S. comes by way of Chinese prisons. I mean, that's just astounding to me. And can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered that story and how you managed to get that footage? So basically, I carried this 67-page lawsuit everywhere I went and just kept reading it over and over. And you see in the episode, there are all these people who have been sued in a RICO case, like a racketeering case against this garlic company out in California, Harmony, which has offices in China and California. And I just really started digging in and reaching out to the different players who had been sued. Um, and one of them was this wonderful man named Ming Zhu, who is from China, grew up in the Shandong province, came to New York to be a professor, lost his professorship after um, funding went away um, during Madoff, and then um, went back into the garlic business and realized when he was home on a family vacation that the local housewives were complaining to him about how his their work had been taken, their like at-home work had been taken by where they used to peel garlic was now being done by all the local prisons. So his son, who's this great tech guy who went to Columbia, helped him buy a undercover camera, and he snuck into the prisons presented himself as like an American businessman now and got us this incredible footage. And it, it, it is extraordinary also because his son knows like gadgets so well that the quality of the footage we have from inside a prison is, is I think, extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. Mango, I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned about, about maybe we're not working hard enough because we haven't sent anyone to prison with our work on Part-Time Genius and we haven't <laughs> had to sneak anyone out of China. We really got to step up our game here. But we are talking about cheese, which is awesome today. And so we, we've talked about some funny cheese thefts in this episode. But, Christine, I'm curious, are there any cheese-related scandals or just weird facts that you're obsessed with? First, one thing everyone should know is that the way cheese is regulated is if you buy a pepperoni pizza, if the pepperoni makes you sick, that's regulated by the USDA. If the cheese makes you sick, it's regulated by the FDA. Well, I, I love that every bite of a slice of pepperoni pizza is like a delicious taste of bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> it is, absolutely, yes. So, Christine, my favorite thing about you as a reporter is when you find whimsical stories. And, and I, I know I've talked to you about your Bird Talk magazine story, the obit for it, which I loved so much. And, and you found royalty and taxi cab drivers and you just find great stories. But is there anything delightful going on in food or agriculture right now that you're kind of fascinated by? I am still three years in really enjoying writing about food and agriculture. And I think the characters are wonderful. I've been spending a lot of time talking to this wonderful turkey farmer who won't eat turkey because he's so close to his turkeys. So he eats pork on Thanksgiving, and um, <laughs> and I basically I'm talking to farmers at all hours now. So it I, I'm getting very attuned to the, like the habits of livestock and how turkeys can be very sensitive, and it's just like a very entertaining and fun beat. That's really wonderful. Well, I hope all of our listeners will check out Rotten on Netflix right now. Christine Honey, thanks so much for being on Part Time Genius. Thank you. It's great chatting with you. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so before we get off American cheeses, I do want to tell one last story, and that's the Jack in Monterey Jack. So there's actually a real Jack behind that cheese? Yeah, it was this this Scott. His name was David Jack, and he came to the U.S. in the 1840s. He was a contractor, and he wasn't exactly like the laid-back California dude, and he made a lot of money and started owning land and was supposedly this ruthless landlord, but he ended up with shares in a number of local dairy farms. Now, the truth is that Franciscan friars in the Monterey area had been making this distinctive cheese in the region for quite a while. But since he already had the milk, David Jack decided to co-opt the friars' recipe and get into the cheese business for himself. Initially, he called the product Jack's Cheese, but then he rebranded it Monterey Jack. (laughs) So 
I mean, that's pretty cool that like monks have given us champagne and cheese and, and they get so little credit for it. Yeah. Don't forget genetics, Mango. I mean, M- Mendel <laughs> and his pea plants and all that. You're right, though. They don't get credit. So uh, well, why don't we do a few superlatives before we get to the fact off? Uh, what would you have on your side? All right. Well, how about the uh, the best cheese for when you want to spoil yourself? And I'm going to go with uh, with Puel for this. And it's that crumbly cheese from Serbia. It's actually donkey cheese. Do you remember when there were all those uh, rumors that Djokovic, after going on that insane win streak in tennis, decided to buy up all the donkey cheese in Serbia? <laughs> it was so absurd, and it was in the headlines for like a long time. I mean, you got to dream big when you're somebody like that. And, and, and maybe it's a smart business strategy to corner that market because Puel sells for $576 a pound. That's insane. So what makes it so expensive? Well, apparently it takes about 25 liters just to make a single kilogram of donkey cheese. Donkey cheese feels like it should be a phrase, like a synonym for going bananas. Like one second, Hector and I were having a normal conversation and then he went all donkey cheese on me. <laughs> I like that. Who, who's Hector Mango? I'm not quite sure I know uh, Hector. <laughs> you but don't want to piss him off. <laughs> I'm not sure this phrase is going to take off. But all right. What, what cheese would you like to honor? Um, actually, before I go, I read about this moose cheese from Sweden that sells for over $400 a pound. And I think the idea is similar to your donkey cheese, except that I think moose might be more temperamental. Like if Hmm. a moose senses any sort of disturbance, it'll go dry for a while. So milking one has to be done super patiently and in total silence. (laughs) And even then, it's not like you're walking away with like a bucket of moose milk. The return for those two hours of quiet is pretty sparse, but wow. I, I think the cheese is supposed to be, like, extraordinary. That is pretty interesting, but I feel like you're stalling, Mango. I mean, you haven't <laughs> given me your cheese award yet. I know, because I'm not really prepared for this. Uh, let, let, let me look through my notes. So um, I I don't want to say something about Kasu Marza, which is that illegal maggot cheese because it's too gross. Oh, How about a cheese worth losing your head over? And that would be Brie. So, according to the story, Louis XVI was fleeing from revolutionaries in France. But along the way, the monarch decided to take a pit stop at a tavern because his tum-tum was growling. And when he was apprehended, before being taken to the guillotine, mind you, he was caught with this giant plate of brie in front of him. And he was just enjoying the cheese in a very leisurely manner, (laughs) which is ridiculous. But uh, I actually find it a little Shakespearean. Wait, first of all, did you say tum tum? I just <laughs> wanted to be clear on that. I think that you did, but so so why why is this uh why is this Shakespearean? Uh cuz it's like a big question for a monarch, right? To brie or not to brie? Oh gosh. <laughs> I didn't think it could get worse than tum tum. You really did say that and now you've said to brie or not to brie. But all right, well why don't we pretend neither of those things happened and let's just get straight into the fact off. <laughs> All right, here's one for you. Did you know that before lawmakers settled on the term processed cheese, cheesemakers were lobbying to classify craft cheeses as embalmed cheese? <laughs> <laughs> you know what Richard Nixon's last meal as president was? What's that? So he had uh, pineapple slices, a glass of milk, and a bowl of cottage cheese. <laughs> There's a photo of it online, and it's actually so sad. But apparently uh, cottage cheese was one of Nixon's favorite snacks, and he especially liked to eat it with ketchup. 
Oh, now I actually am a fan of cottage cheese, but I don't understand. Actually, I like all of those things, but I don't understand that combination. If you've ever eaten pineapple and had anything with dairy in it, you know, along with it, it is disgusting. That is so strange. <laughs> Nixon was a strange man. Well, according to the site Adi, McDonald's used a clever trick to cut costs back in 2008. They pulled one of the two slices of cheese from their double cheeseburger and renamed it the McDouble. The move saves six cents per sandwich and $15,000 a year per restaurant. Wow, that's got to add up. Do you know that the phrase, the big cheese, actually comes from Hindi? Like, cheese in Hindi and Urdu actually means thing, and the British picked up on it when they colonized India. The real cheese meant something that was top-notch or, like, the real thing, and a big cheese evolved into this, like, important person. Not everyone loved the term, though. So Wired reports that by 1896, people were using the word cheesy with sarcasm and using it to describe something negative. Like, I, I didn't realize that was that old. Yeah, I didn't either. All right. Well, you and I have talked about the giant wheel of cheese Andrew Jackson received during his presidency. But apparently big wheels used to be a common present in America. When Thomas Jefferson was elected, he received the Mammoth of Cheshire. It was this 1,200-pound wheel of cheese. And it was rolled through towns from Massachusetts, you know, like much fanfare along the way. And, of course, some ridicule along the way as well. <laughs> the cheese even had a Jefferson quote on the rind. It said, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And, you know, this wasn't just in America. Like a big wheel of cheese was a great way to show someone you cared in England, too. When Queen Victoria got married, her subjects uh, pooled the milk of 750 cows to create a thousand pound wheel. And the townspeople were so impressed with their feet that they asked if they could put it on display and delay giving the present to her, which she agreed to. But when the exhibition was over and they tried to wheel the cheese back her way, the queen declined to give it a home. All right, well, did you know that Philadelphia cream cheese isn't actually named for Philly, but actually for the town of Philadelphia, New York? I mean, it kind of ruins it, because I always just pictured Ben Franklin there smearing his toast with it in the mornings. I know, I, I always had such pride. Like, I, I lived <laughs> near Philly. I thought it was from Philly. Um, this is a great one. In the 1860s, when Brazil was fighting the sea battle against Uruguay, a Uruguayan ship ran out of ammunition. So they used cannonballs made out of stale Edom cheese that they had on board. Oh, nice. But the weirdest part is that it actually worked and they won the sea battle. Oh, that is a great story. But actually, I've got one I've been saving that I really think is going to be hard to top. So have you heard about the origin of the uh, the Packers cheesehead hats? Mm-mm. So it goes back to this guy named Ralph Bruno, and he was reupholstering his mom's couch when he realized he had an extra cushion. So he decided to get playful with it, and he burned some holes into it and painted it yellow. Now, his mom banished him from the house because it smelled so bad, <laughs> but he wore it to a Brewers game later that night, and somehow the cheese head took off across Wisconsin sports. That's where it all began. I love that. And I also love that, like, it, it, burnt cheese smells bad, but burnt cheese hats also smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, I, I like that you found the guy behind the American cheese trend. So uh, I, I'm going to give it to you. Oh, thanks so much. I feel like uh, I needed this one. This is this is a good one. Well, thank you guys all for listening. Now, if we've forgotten any facts about cheese that you feel like we need to know, feel free to email us part time genius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Jason who? Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.